0: If you would like to turn your Bibles to a beginning point, we'll start in uh, Hosea chapter 6, the Old Testament. It may take me a few minutes to get there, but uh, that's where we'll begin. I've been teaching for the last number of weeks on uh, miracles, moves of God, and then finally uh, recently on uh, revival. Um, There are some things that... uh, that the Lord has has put on my heart and really impressed upon me regarding the time that we live and the things that that the Scripture says that are ahead. If if you were with us last week, you may recall that I spoke of a period of time in American history from nineteen I'm sorry from 1825 to 1835 that was known as the Second Great Awakening. one of the men, well, the primary individual that was used. In this uh, time of great revival, was a man by the name of Charles Finney, Charles G. Finney. And uh, and after the uh, the period of revival, he wrote a, a, a well, he didn't write; he, he uh, preached a series of uh, sermons that were transcribed and uh, and later published, that uh, were titled "Lectures on Revival and Religion." And he talked about some things that are that were crucial in the the uh, the second great awakening. This was a time when um, uh, it, uh, the, the move of God w- was uh, located primarily in the northeastern part of the country. Many of the uh, revivals were in upstate New York, uh, where the greatest concentration of people were at that point in time in the country and um, and there were there were reports, just one report after another after the revivals would begin in certain cities, and people would come from all around from villages and Towns nearby and so forth that uh, uh, that the saloons and taverns and so forth would close down because nobody was frequenting them anymore because everybody got saved, and so it, it had a, it had a definite impact not only on the spiritual climate of the country um, at that time but also on the it had an economic effect as well because people started putting their money and using their resources toward uh, godly endeavors rather than than other things and uh, and it was um, uh, it was such that uh, you, you can read about it anywhere. Is not you don't have to go to a Christian magazine or a Christian publication to find out about these things. It was something that uh, that everybody was talking about all around the country. And uh, Finney identified certain things that uh, he blamed the church for a lack of revival. There was uh, there was a great dispute at that point in time. Actually, he created it about moves of God and and how things work. Uh, everybody back then was primarily Calvinist. Uh, Calvinism is uh, is rooted in the sovereignty of God. Everything happens at God's will, and if it doesn't happen, it's because God doesn't want it to happen type thing. And uh, so everybody's looking for if there's going to be a move of God, if there's going to be some kind of work that takes place in the church, it's going to be because God institutes it. And Finney, Finney worked tirelessly against that notion. He said that, uh, and, and I should back up and give you a little background say some things that I said about him before. Finney was a lawyer and uh and didn't believe in the preaching that he heard about Jesus, didn't believe in the church or anything. So he set out to disprove it by reading the Bible. Well, you know what happens then? He got saved and gave his heart to the Lord and so forth, and uh and God made a preacher out of him. And so uh so Finney said that uh uh that the word of God and the work of God was just as sure and just as reliable as farming. everybody was, Most everybody was farmers back then, at least in the rural parts of the country. And he said that uh, no farmer would plant seed and then just leave it alone and pray for God to do something with it if he wanted to. He said in the same way, the work of God is more sure than planting seed. And he said that with the right means and measures, he used those two phrases very often, he said with the right means and measures, you could expect a revival. Well, some of his measures... Are things that uh, the means were always the same, but the measures were interesting. The measures are what got him in trouble with everybody else. Now, as I said, it was a great controversy about whether it was the sovereign work of God or whether it was the work of the church and, and so forth. Um, he was very much um, spoken against, uh, criticized, and so forth because of the measures that he would use. He did away with the, formal, the formality of preaching, he was a lawyer, and so he made his case. He would preach to the people and, and uh, the criticism against that was, well, educated people won't respond to that. But lawyers and doctors and educated people came by the scores into the, into the revivals and, uh, and gave their hearts to the Lord. They're finally hearing preaching that made sense to them, that they could understand and therefore make a choice from their heart about what to do. One of the measures that he employed was he encouraged people to pray for others by name. That had never been done before we take stuff like that for granted, but it was big time change for them. Another thing was that he employed women's prayer groups. Women weren't supposed to pray together, and if they did, they weren't supposed to do anything important. And so when he encouraged women's prayer groups to pray for revival, man, that stirred up the guys, the, the men of the church, in a, in a great, mighty way. Another thing that he did that we take for granted is that he would encourage what he called the anxious to come forward. And you've got to define your terms because if you call for the ancients to come forward, everybody would be up front <laughs> nowadays. But he's talking about people that got under conviction. He was the first one to institute an altar call. And that's what he called it. As a matter of fact, they would set up in his revivals, they would set up all, uh, anxious benches. And they would just split rail benches for somebody to come and kneel down and, and, and give his heart to the Lord. Well, that wasn't done. And boy, I mean, it stirred up trouble. Now the the measures were were controversial, but the means were always the same, and the means that he employed were pray, Was prayer? Now he would preach the word, but it wasn't the word as like you and I would understand. It was a it was a gospel message. It was a salvation message. It was an evangelistic message, but as I said, it was a logical means of preaching. So it might be what we would consider very simple teaching. A very simple preaching about Jesus and Jesus crucified, which I don't mean to, in case this is coming across wrong, I'm not putting that down. I'm not saying that that's anything less than what we ought to do. I think all of our preaching should be that simple nowadays. Don't you agree? But it wasn't anything, it wasn't any great revelation is what I'm trying to get across. It wasn't any new, new doctrine. It wasn't any new revelation. It was just he took the word of God and proved his case. And people came by the scores. Whole towns were getting saved. As a matter of fact, it was unusual for somebody in town not to get saved. There was one account in, uh, in a, uh, upstate New York City where uh, they were praying for the city and they would take it by, by blocks and uh, long streets and, and they would call everybody by name and pray for them to be saved. And there was one guy that didn't get saved. Out of all the, city, all the streets in the city that they prayed for, there was one guy that didn't get saved. Well, when they found out that he hadn't yet got saved, it put everybody on the case. Well, yeah, that guy didn't stand a chance, you know. So he wound up getting saved, but it was a shock that somebody that they prayed for didn't get results. Well, Finney said that a lack of revival is the church's fault. It's not God's. He said that it wasn't a matter of a sovereign move of God, but that if the church would revive itself, then it would bring in the lost. Now, there's a couple of things that... uh, Um, That I wanted to relate to you from his lectures on revival and religion and let me define our terms here, too He called religion as obedience to god So when he's talking about a revival of religion, he's talking about a revival of obedience to god Nowadays religion may have a negative connotation or negative concept to us I I personally because of my background come out of a uh, situation where religion has more of a um, Connotation or a sense of bondage rather than freedom in christ but that's not what he meant by religion that's not what religion was understood by in, in his day so he's talking about a revival of obedience to christ and one of the things he said one of the importances of re, of uh, a revival that he identified in his lectures let me read this to you he said the revival of religion and again, that's a revival of obedience to god is the only possible thing that can wipe away the reproach which covers the church and restore religion to its the place it ought to have in the estimation of the public. Without a revival, this reproach will cover the church more and more until it is overwhelmed with universal contempt. Now, one of the things he said was uh, a condition when a revival was needed, He said, what he said, was when there was a controversy in the church. Now, folks, I would submit to you that the gay marriage issue is a controversy in the church today. Now, I want to go on record as saying I'm not against anybody. Everybody starts off as a sinner. And even as, after we get saved, we all deal with our flesh and struggle with the flesh and so forth. So I'm not against anybody. I'm not down on anybody for anybody's sin. But homosexuality is a sin. Not because I think so, but because God said so. And if I think to the contrary, it's still a sin. Because God said so. And if America accepts gay marriage as equal rights or protected rights or whatever else, homosexuality is still the sin. So no matter where the church comes down, and it seems like every week more and more stories come out about churches that are trying to present themselves as tolerant and accepting and and so forth. So they're going along with the gay marriage issue, the gay rights issue, or whatever it is. Homosexuality is still a sin. Now, folks, I'm going to say something to you that may shock you. We allow adulterers into our church. But we don't condone their adultery And we're not going to make adultery a protected class Because adultery is still a sin And it should be the same with every other sin there is We accept liars into our church Aren't you glad Sin is sin because God says it is Not because we decide what we think in the same way, we would accept a homosexual, a homosexual into the church. But we're not going to condone their action any more than we would lying or, or adultery or anything else. And we're not going to make a protected class about it. We're going to teach them how to overcome so they can walk in victory. But homosexuality is still a sin. It's You watch, though. It's going to become the, the main controversy in the church, the body of Christ, in the last days. We need a revival. Now, Finney goes on to say... Uh, regarding this the reproach of the church that we just read if anyone on to say that the church has tried to overcome its reproach now this this he wrote this about churches in 1825 from 1825 to 1835 almost 200 years ago he said that churches were trying to overcome the reproach by building nice buildings by becoming respectable But he said that just increases the contempt that the world has for the church because it gives them a false idea of what real religion, and he's talking about obedience to God, what real religion is about. If that was true almost 200 years ago, how much more true is that today? Now, we've talked a little bit about the measures that he spoke of, and and those measures got him in trouble. As a matter of fact, one of the most well-known preachers before Finney came to prominence uh, I, I won't tell you the guy's name. I, there's no, you wouldn't know who he is, but I don't want to speak against anybody. He was so against Finney's measures that he threatened, when Finney's revival came to his town, his uh, uh, home state, he threatened to meet him with an armed guard because you can't have the women praying in church. You can't have people coming forward to getting saved. You can't be praying for people by name. Those are the measures that the that the church of that day stood against. You can't have informal preaching. You got to have somebody in a stiff collar standing up high on the perch, you know, talking about things that nobody can understand. That's the way God works, you see. So it was a real it was a real issue. Another thing that he said. Another thing that Finney made mention of. That was a need or an importance of a revival is he said this he said nothing else will restore Christian love and confidence among church members Now i've always been interested. I know I told you to turn to hosea 6 and we'll get there But look within acts chapter 4 Acts chapter 4 has always intrigued me Because of the prayer that the church prayed Now, we've made certain comments about the early church and the the way that God worked in the early church. And and I know some people say that God doesn't work that way now, but my Bible says God never changes. I know people do, but God doesn't. And if God gave us a record of something in the early days of the church, my thinking is that record has to be there for a reason. And if it's not there as an example, why did he waste the time to, to record it? If he left it there to taught us to show us what they had and what we can't have, then God's not the God that the Bible says he is. So after the, uh, the man at the beautiful gate was healed in chapter 3, and Peter and John are called before the council and threatened not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus in chapter 4, it says in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4, And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders said to them. Notice they reported it and didn't complain about it. They're not whining. They just said, here's what they they told us. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. Notice everybody's praying. Nobody's leading in prayer. They're lifting up their voice to God with one accord. Now, there's only one way that I can understand that this is taking place, and that is they're all praying in the Spirit by the unction of the Holy Ghost, and this is the Holy Ghost giving us the interpretation of what God heard. Otherwise, they're not all praying together. Otherwise, somebody's leading in prayer and everybody else is just sitting by and listening. Now, that's the way the church used to pray when I was growing up. Somebody would lead in prayer and everybody else was listening, and we called that prayer. Well, there wasn't anybody praying except the guy that was talking. Here, the Bible says, and I don't believe it's there by accident, it says they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. Now, they're not reading a script, so they've got to be praying out of their hearts. And here's the Holy Ghost interpretation of what they prayed. They lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Isn't it good to know that when you pray in tongues, you're saying something like that? Goes forward and says in verse 25, Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? Holy Ghost will prompt you and inspire you when you speak in other tongues. You're quoting the word too. The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ for of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Notice God doesn't just put righteous people in place. That always goes over big. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Now, folks, I've said this before, but I'll just mention it quickly. I wish there was a Ronald Reagan on the scene. If only that was the will of God. But it's not. It was at one point in time, but it's not now. Because the hope for America is not in politics. The hope for America does not lie in the Republican Party. You certainly understand I don't have to say that it doesn't lie in the Democratic Party. That should be a given. I mean, when a political party's agenda is the devil's agenda, you should be able to figure that out on your own. But the answer for America is not in politics. We're at a different time than it was when Reagan came to prominence. We're at a different time. If we were to have another Ronald Reagan come on the scene, the church wouldn't pray, the church wouldn't look to God, they'd look to politics to fix the problems. The answer for today's world is Jesus. And only him. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Now here's what they're going to ask for. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant. That means give. And grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. They're asking for boldness. But what's going to cause the boldness? See, I think a lot of times we prayed for boldness and then just went out and tried to be bold and came across as rude. There's a lot of Christian preachers that, that claim to be bold. Uh, it's not boldness. It's just rude. It's just arrogance. Notice they're asking for a specific kind of boldness. He said, "Grant unto thy servants with all boldness, they may speak thy word by. In other words, here's how. By stretching forth your hand to heal and the signs and wonders may be done in the name of the holy child, Jesus. The church was praying, I believe, prompted by the Holy Ghost as they spoke in other tongues. I believe that the Holy Ghost is prompting the church to pray Lord, move by signs and wonders, move by your healing power to give the church boldness to preach Jesus. That's what Finney's talking about. Finney's saying that without a revival, the church won't grow in love toward one another or the confidence that we need in prayer. Now, I'm going to have to take issue with Brother Finney. Because when Finney is preaching against, and I understand why and I understand the, the means and the, the methods that it was done... He's preaching against the sovereignty of God issue because the sovereignty of God issue does the same thing then or did the same thing then that it does in every period of time in the church. And that is when you put all the responsibility on God, you, the church, does nothing. And all the responsibility is not on God. The responsibility for getting saved is not on God. It's on the individual. Jesus said, whosoever will, let him come, and I'll no wise cast him out. Well, will is is an act of of the individual. He didn't say, whoever God wills, let him come. He said, who has, whosoever will, whosoever is individual, who, whatever individual turns their will toward God, let him make that decision. So the, decisions is, uh, the decision is ours. God, the Bible says, God has already done everything there is to do about our well-being in every area of life. The decision is ours to receive it and act on it. And that's why the Bible tells us in, in so many words that God won't violate another person's will. God has made the will of man sovereign in his own life. That's why he gives us the truth of the word so that we can make the right choices. So that we can receive and accept and take hold of the things that God has done for us through the finished work of Jesus. But the choice is man's, not God's. And so the idea that it's all up to God and God will do whatever he wants to do and won't do whatever he doesn't want to do. Folks, if that's the truth, then God's letting a lot of people go to hell that the Bible said Jesus died for. In fact, the Bible says that it's the will of God for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So you can't reconcile these things with the notion that God's picking and choosing winners and losers. You just can't do it. The church prayed as they were inspired by the Holy Ghost, Lord, give us boldness by stretching forth your hand to heal. So here's where I take issue with Finney, and that is very simply this. It's both the church's responsibility and the move of God. Because if the church was, if it was all the responsibility of the church, then they would have said, well, we're just going to go out and be bold. Come what may, but they didn't. They relied as they were prompted by the spirit of God. They prompted, they were prompted to pray, Lord, you move so that we can act boldly. Now, does does the boldness come because they find out something they didn't already know? I mean, they know about healing. The guy in Acts chapter 3 just got healed, didn't he? That seemed to be, to be pretty bold action on the part of the church already. Yet they're praying for more boldness. They just finished standing before the council and saying, Jesus, the one that you crucified is the one that raised this guy up and healed his body. That sounds to me to be pretty bold. But they're asking for a move of God. They're praying specifically, and I want to say it this way to make sure you get the point. The Holy Ghost prompted the church, the early church, to pray for a move of God so that they would have boldness. What happens when you speak the word of God with boldness? God confirms his word with signs following. So it's a domino effect. Rather than a cause and effect, it's a domino effect. It's a momentum builder. The move of God creates boldness on the part of the church. Finney talked about that boldness. To remove the reproach of the church. Folks the world is laughing at the church. We don't like to admit it. And we don't like to talk about it in those terms. But the world is laughing at the church. Because we're talking about power that we don't show. We preach a Bible that speaks of healings and miracles. Without any evidence of them. You think that's the way God wants it to be? Okay, turn back with me to Hosea chapter 6. Finney went on to say, let me read this as you're turning. Finney went on to say, there must be a waking up of energy on the part of Christians and an outpouring of God's spirit, or the world will laugh at the church. I would submit to you that that's happening already. Hosea chapter 6, we'll start reading in verse 1. This is one of those places that's a... um, that's a poor translation in the sense that the translators translated the verbs in a causative sense when they're in a permissive sense. You'll see what I mean as we read verse 1. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, meaning wounded, and he will heal us. He has smitten, and he will bind us up. If you take the time to go back into chapter 5, you'll find out Israel's in the mess they're in because they willingly disobeyed the commandments of God. God didn't do it. They did it to themselves. But the translators operating under the sovereignty of God idea, everything that happens is... Uh, is uh, Due to God's action or inaction, based on his unknown will in some way or another. They translate it in the causative sense. Literally, it says, Let us return to the Lord because we are wounded, he will heal us. Because we've been smitten, talking about their own actions, he will bind us up. Notice in verse 2 After two days, will he revive us? The word revive means recovery of breath. After two days, will he revive us? In the third day, he will raise us up and we will live in his sight. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning and he shall come. He shall come. Now, there's a lot of ways you can translate. He shall come. Or interpret, I should say, not translate. For example, verse two is is used a lot of times. Uh, In connection with another verse of scripture that says a a day with the Lord is is a thousand years and a thousand years is is as a day. A lot of people look at verse 2 and say, well, after 2000 years, we can expect Jesus to come back. Well, I I, I agree with that in principle. Although we don't know specifically that that's the that's the reference or that's the uh, appropriate interpretation. But I believe Jesus is ready to come back now. And it's been about 2000 years. So here where it's talking about him coming, it could be talking about him coming back for the church, what we know of as the rapture. It just said he'll come for us and then we'll live in his sight. That could have a a rapture reference. I don't think you can prove it specifically or conclusively out of that scripture alone, but it adds to some of the other things in the scripture that we know about. And so that could be a reference. We know he's coming. We know he's coming for the church, right? Right. So it says, then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come. Notice its con- connection with knowing the Lord. He shall come. He shall come. He shall come. He shall come unto us as the rain. Notice how he comes. He comes like the rain. Where does rain come from? It comes from heaven. He shall come to us as the rain, as the latter and the former rain unto the earth. Now, I'm going to remind you of James chapter 5. You can turn with me there to verse 7 if you'd like. James chapter 5 and verse 7. James is speaking to the church about the last days. And he said, be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Thank God he's coming. Well, we know his his, uh, subject. He's talking about Jesus coming for the church. That's what we know of as the rapture. When he comes and receives us under himself. So it says be patient therefore brethren under the coming of the Lord. Behold the husbandman waiteth. We know he's waiting because he hadn't gotten here yet. But what's he waiting for? Behold the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth. Now what in the world could that possibly be? Folks the only thing God's ever cared about is people. And the fact that it speaks of it in an agricultural sense. is talking about he's waiting for a harvest. He's waiting for the, the, the the Maximum yield, if you will, for people being one into the kingdom of God. I'm sure glad God doesn't deal with things the way that we are or the way that we do, that he's not the way that we are, because I'm sure if I was God, I would have gotten frustrated a long time ago and just sent Jesus for whoever was ready. Got this thing done and taken care of so I didn't have to listen to some of the politicians talk anymore. (laughs) But I'm glad he doesn't operate that way. He has long patience for it. He has long patience for the precious fruit of the earth. Now, what is it that's going to bring about this precious fruit of the earth? He's got to be talking about the end times. He's got to be talking about things that have not yet occurred because Jesus hasn't yet come. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it. Thank God he does. Until, everybody say until. That means something has to happen first. Until he received the early and the latter rain. Now, if you put those two scriptures together, it's talking about something happening to happen, something taking place that brings about a precious fruit of the earth of the harvest of souls, uh, an evangelistic wave of people being won into the kingdom of God before Jesus comes back. Let me also remind you of what the Bible talks about concerning the end in Haggai chapter 2, verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. Now, the desire of all nations, you can conclusively prove that that's what the earth is travailing, groaning and travailing about, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God, meaning Jesus coming back for the church. And the desire of all nations shall come. So he's talking end-time stuff. And I will fill this house... With glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Notice the glory is connected with Jesus coming back to the earth. Is that possible that it's the glory of God that he's talking about coming to us as the rain that Jesus is waiting for that will produce the precious fruit of the earth or the harvest of, of people wanting to the kingdom of God? I don't know how, what other conclusion you can draw. See, some people will say, yeah, but the Bible says the word that we use for rapture or talk about the rapture from means a catching away or a falling away. Which is it? Some people think that it's going to be a great apostasy before the end. Which is it? Folks, I think it's both. I think you're going to have a segment of the church or a portion of the church that are falling away, getting caught up in the political and the social issues of the day, gay marriage or whatever else it might be. And they'll fall away from the truth of the word. They'll stop accepting the word of God as the God's final authority on the subject. I doubt very seriously if the Apostle Paul showed up today. I doubt very seriously if he would be impressed with the state of the, of the American church. I would imagine that there's a lot of churches that he'd walk into. I hope it's not this one. But a lot of churches that he'd walk into and say, what in the world are you preaching? And when they answered, he'd say, well, didn't you read this letter that I wrote? Or didn't you read that that I wrote? Because the church has gotten so far away from the word of God, we've become, in the eyes of the world at least, a social club. Now, is there any dispute for that? I mean, I don't want to jump out too far here. But is that even in dispute or in in, uh, argument about whether or not that's true? So he said, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Folks, silver and gold has got to have something to do with glory or else God wouldn't have said it. Now, we can disagree on what it is, but it's got some kind of connection. I found that when you do what God tells you to do, God pays the bills. Verse 9, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former saith the lord of hosts and in this place will i give peace saith the lord of hosts now there's several ways we can interpret that at the time that this was written the second temple was being being rebuilt or the temple was being rebuilt of what was known as the second temple there were three temples in jerusalem the first was solomon's temple when they dedicated the temple that was filled with the glory of god and the priest couldn't stand to minister by reason of the cloud when the second temple was built it was in zerubbabel's day The second temple was built. There were no golden instruments. It was not according to the pattern that God had given. And some of the people that were alive at the dedication of Solomon's temple were still alive at the dedication of the second temple, and they wept because there was no glory in the temple. So this can't be talking about the second temple. Where he says, I'll fill this house with glory, can't be talking about the second temple. The Bible disproves that. The third temple was Herod's temple. That's the one that the disciples were impressed with when Jesus walked through with them and they said, oh, wow, have you ever seen anything like this? And Jesus remarked kind of with contempt, disgust and said, there's coming a day where there won't be one stone left upon another for this one. So that can't be the glory that he's talking about. Well, then what glory is he talking about? He's got to be talking about the church. Well, then now we've got another question to ask. Is he talking about the early days of the church that we have record of in the book of Acts? Well, it could be. Certainly could be, there was certainly the glory of God being made manifest, not only in their church meetings, but also throughout the cities where the church was operating. But remember, he's talking about the glory of God in connection with the last days. Not the beginning of the last days, but the end of the last days concerning Jesus returning for the church. The husband waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. Folks, I believe with all my heart, I'm convinced of it. That there's a move of God yet to come. That there's a move of God yet to come. Now, back to Finney. Finney's means were always the same, and that was prayer. Finney said, he made certain statements, and I won't take time to read them. I'm running out of time this morning, but I won't take time to read them. But he talked about whenever there was a real genuine move of God that affects cities, that, that, at least in his ministry, the way that God used him, he said there was always at least somebody that had a spirit of prayer for revival. Now, let me tell you something that I've learned. I've learned, and I learned this, first of all, working with Brother Hagin, Kenneth Hagin. I learned what it was like to be a man of faith. Brother Hagin lived by faith, and he walked in love. He lived what he preached. I I can't overemphasize how impressed I was with the man because I never saw him violate what I heard him preach on the platform. But he was also a man of prayer now here's what I learned about prayer It's a whole lot easier to teach prayer and to talk about prayer than it is to pray And there's a big difference a lot of the people that are talking about prayer and a lot of the people that are teaching prayer aren't praying And it's not the teaching on prayer that gets the job done It's not preaching about prayer that gets the job done It's not talking about the importance of prayer that gets the job done. It's praying Brother Hagan was the first man I ever been around. I, I, honestly, I didn't know you could be like this. He was the first guy I was ever around that really prayed. And when he prayed, he connected with heaven because he always prayed the word. Now, when Finney talked about the spirit of prayer, he made this statement. He said, it takes somebody praying for revival. He said, and, and he, he used his own example. Or his own experience. He said, I've found that a lot of Christians who are even warm in prayer don't pray for revival. Well, I certainly think that's true of the church today. In the early days of the church, Acts 4 is a good example. The church prayed for a move of God. They're praying for God to move, not shirking their responsibilities, not saying, God, it's all on you. They're saying, give us confidence by stretching forth your hand to heal. Now, they've just healed the man at the beautiful gate of the temple in Acts chapter 3. Why aren't they living on that? Because it's supposed to be a continuous flow. Otherwise, the Holy Ghost wouldn't prompt them to pray what they prayed. Are you with me? Now, folks, what is a spirit of prayer? Finney defines it as this. He said, when you're occupied in your waking moments with something that you must have, he said, that's a spirit of prayer. Now, I, would, uh, uh, I was thinking about this and trying to relate to it in as best way as I could and, and wanted to, to relate to you in the best way that I could. And, and it, uh, it occurred to me, I've always known this, but the Lord seemed to bring it to my, my remembrance. It occurred to me that everybody is occupied with something. Everybody is. Everybody is occupied with something. Now, I don't know what you're occupied with. Most Christians never get occupied with anything beyond themselves. And I don't mean that as criticism because we all at least start there or come through that phase. But depending on where you are, something, meaning where you are in life, something occupies your thoughts. Something occupies your desires. Something occupies your, your, your waking moments. If you're in a financial hardship, Then your finances probably occupy your thinking. If you've got a a, a situation with a loved one, maybe they're estranged from God, then that may be the thing that occupies your thinking. Now, don't get me wrong, folks. I'm not saying that whatever occupies your thinking is what you're praying about, because most Christians are occupied just with worry and not with prayer. But I can think back into into situations, even even, uh, certainly after I was saved, even while I was in the ministry. When we were going through some of the trouble that we had with the building and some of the financial hardships and stuff, I wish I'd handled that better. Now, don't get me wrong. I I never spoke against God. I never confessed anything other than the Word, and that's one of the reasons that it worked the way that it did. But in my thinking, in my estimation, we were in a fight for our very survival, talking about the church. Well, that may be true, but folks, I would submit to you that there wasn't much I could do about it. And it occupied the the, the lack of finances and the trouble and the the hardship occupied a lot more of my thinking than it should have. And I can look back at some of those times and some of those days, some of those experiences and think I would have been better off just trusting God like I was preaching about. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, I didn't yield to the worry or when I did, I'd get rid of it as quickly as I could. But it occupied my thinking. I mean, it was on me day and night. Now, you know, I can make excuses for it. I can say, well, i would never had that kind of experience before, and that's how you learn, and that's certainly true. That would be true for you or me or whoever it is. That's the way you learn. But for goodness sake, shouldn't we learn and move on? In the situations with the loved one estranged from God, that took up, uh, took up all my thought life, a certain part of my time, a certain part of my, my, time, part of my life. And we love our children and, and those that are, that are part of us and close to us. We want the best for them. But after all, what is worrying about it going to produce? Same thing's true for our finances. Same thing's true for our healing, the healing of our bodies are concerned. What can we do except trust God and rely on Him? And in each of those situations that I can identify in my life and and can point to as similar things in, in all of our lives, they're all designed by the enemy to distract us from what's most important. Let me show you what's most important. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Now, I want to throw something out for your consideration. When you get to heaven and you meet somebody that the Bible talked about, I'm talking about in the book of Acts, not just Old Testament stuff. Let's define it to the or confine it to the New Testament for a minute. If you meet somebody that the Bible talks about in some great way in the New Testament, what are you going to talk to them in heaven about? How big a house they had? Whether or not they were successful in business? What kind of car they drove? What are you going to talk to them about? You're going to talk to them about the things regarding the move of God that you have information on. The things recorded in the scripture by the Holy Ghost where they were connected with or involved in the work of God. What do you think people are going to talk to you about when you get to heaven? What was the size of your house? What kind of car you drove? whether or not you made a success in business. Now, folks, all of those things occupy our thinking, and rightly so. I'm not saying we should go through life blind, you know, just dumb and stupid and and acting like everything's going to work out. I see some Christians that that say that they're trusting in the Lord and just turned everything over to them when, in fact, what they're doing is they're just ignoring reality. So there's a ditch on both sides of the road here. But you're going to talk to people in heaven about how God used them and what, what part they had in the work and the plan of God when you get there, aren't you? What else is there for us to magnify? Why won't we be centered on, on house size and cars and clothes and business and stuff like that? Why won't we be settled on the earthly things and the fleshly things that we're so consumed with now? Because we'll see clearly that those things don't matter in relation to the work and the plan of God. Well, if that's what we're going to know when we get to heaven, why don't we get a leg up and learn it here? Acts chapter 19. Paul passes through the upper coast of Ephesus and comes to Corinth, uh, gets certain people baptized, filled with the Holy Ghost. They spoke with tongues in verse 6. Start with me in verse 8. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months. He starts with 12 people. Starts with 12 people. Here's a revival that starts with 12 people. So he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened, talking about the Jews, and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated in the, the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyranus. Uh, tradition tells us that it was a healing school, that Tyrannus was a medical doctor, that this was a healing clinic or a medical clinic of some type. And this continued by the space of two years. Already been in the city for three months. Now another two years. This continued by the space of two years. So that, read with me. Let's go slowly because I want you to get this. So that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles or Greeks. Can I ask you a question? Is that not a revival? Now, we look over that verse of Scripture trying to get to the good stuff in the chapter. I'm pretty well convinced God thought that was good stuff. Two years and three months causes a continent to hear the truth. Doesn't say everybody got saved. But could we all agree that this is a move of God at work or revival at work? I'm using the word revival loosely because revival literally means a revival of Christians. A turning of Christians' hearts back toward God, and this would not be the case there. But we would understand that it's an outreach program. Verse 11, and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. It's interesting to me that it doesn't say God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, and that caused all of Asia to hear. He talks about them as separate works. Not unconnected, but separate works. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul and tells us what they were. So that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons and the diseases departed out of or from them and the evil spirits went out of them. Then certain of the vagabond Jews exorcists took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus saying we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Do you understand what the special miracle is folks? The special miracle is not healing. The special miracle is not deliverance from evil uh, spirits. The special miracle is nobody has to be there in person. It's taking place to through the, through the contact of these claws that have had hands laid on them. That's the special miracle. And let me ask you another question. What's a special miracle? That's like saying a miraculous miracle, isn't it? What's a special miracle? A miracle is divine intervention in the ordinary course of nature. Anything God does is miraculous. The special part of it is that it's a new method. It's a new means of the healing and delivering power of God being delivered. Like with any, a, a different measure in operation. So there were seven sons of one Siva. He was the chief priest. Took upon themselves to call over them which had evil spirits. Folks, there's never been a day where people with evil spirits were hard to find. In our day, they're just in respectable positions. That wasn't a joke. It's sad, but it's true. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, vagabond Jews. Interesting to me that the people that do this don't have homes. Got a lot of Christians like that. They're vagabond Christians. Exorcists took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Notice their credibility with Jesus is Paul's preaching, not a personal knowledge. And there were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? Folks, I love this story. Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? Now, one of the things that I would take glory in if if I was Paul here in this story is the devil knew who I was. Does he know who you are? Something to consider, huh? Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They're running down the street with their clothes torn, naked, and wounded, beat up. Now, the Bible doesn't say this, but I'm going to add, I don't think they tried this again. (laughs) But think about what would cause them to try it the first time. The healing and delivering power of God is so prevalent, so well known that people that don't even know God, people that don't know Jesus, people that have not made Jesus the Lord of their lives are willing to act on the power. Now, for wrong motives, certainly. They want to draw attention to themselves, probably want to make some money out of it. But the healing power of God, the delivering power of God has to be pretty well known for for people that aren't even part of the group to want to use it. I want to get you to to understand the nature of the revival that's taking place in in Ephesus and in Asia. This is a move of God. Now, with any move of God, it's, it's always true, always has been true, always will be true. With any and every move of God, there are always going to be people that do the wrong things in the middle of it. There was a move of God in Jerusalem. The power of God was operating in such a degree that people were being healed in the streets and Ananias and Sapphira tried to gain a position of prominence in the church. You remember the story, that didn't work out well. They fell dead in church. Interesting to me that they fell dead in church and it didn't kill the church. Man, if people started falling dead in church today because they lied to the Holy Ghost, do you realize what that would do to your crowds? Cut down on them considerably. Nobody would want to take a chance. So there's always, has been and always will be people that use the things of God and the move of God that's taking place in a wrong manner. But I want, to, want you to see the common attitude, if you will, in the city of Ephesus when this takes place. So they go running down the street naked and wounded. Verse 17, and this was known to all the Jews and the Greeks, Gentiles, also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. The name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many, everybody say many. How many is that? Would indicate there's a lot, especially when it talks about what happens next. And many that believe, these are believers, these are Christians, these are people that are involved in part of the move of God in the city and the area. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. In other words, they owned up to the stuff they were doing in secret. Christians, in the middle of one of the greatest revivals and moves of God, known to mankind, they're still hanging on to their own stuff. They came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them, and they found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Figured this out some years ago, and it was $6 million. It's probably worth more than that now. What's taking place in the middle of the greatest move of God that we have record of in the in the the history of the early church outside of Jerusalem, at least we've got people that are mixing Christianity with occult practices. Christianity is just another one of the gods that they're serving. Notice what happens when they get themselves right as far as their attitude is concerned and their priorities straightened out. Verse 20. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. And prevailed. What does that mean? That means the word of God that they heard and even got saved by wasn't prevailing in their life until they got rid of everything else. Now, when it talks about so mightily grew the word of God, Asia has just heard. The Word of God has covered Asia in the space of two years. And it talks about growing from there. It talks about prevailing from there. See, folks, it comes down to this. It's whatever we put our heart to. That's what's going to be, that's what is most important in our life, and that's what should be geared toward and aimed at the things of God. Now, I know you've got others. Don't get me wrong. I don't have a bone to pick with anybody. I'm not saying get right with God, get saved, or go to hell. That's not my message. I know many of you, most of you, are on fire for the things of God. But I also know that with many of you, I wouldn't know one way or the other. And it's not my business to know. It's between you and God. Our attitude toward the things of God is always a personal thing. You could be harboring occult practices, and I wouldn't know. I I have to tell you, folks, I have heard some of the most shocking things in counseling sessions that you could possibly imagine. I have learned to keep a straight face in the middle of my insides, jumping up and down, saying, you have got to be kidding me. I've heard all kinds of things. I've heard of people that are doing occult stuff and, you know, coming to church on Sunday and doing occult stuff on Sunday nights. And I'm thinking, why would you want to do that? But people do what they do. I'm trying to be real careful not to look at anybody here. (laughs) I don't want you to think I'm thinking something or know something or whatever. But how hot or cold we are for the things of God is between us. It's just a matter of our own heart, isn't it? But let me ask you this. This goes back to when we get to heaven. When you get to heaven... Are you going to be satisfied with how hot you are toward God now? Just like in my situation, I wish I'd handled some things differently. I wish I'd handled some things better. I wish I had not gotten distracted by the own circumstances that I was involved in in my life and still kept the things of God first and foremost, meaning the things of God, meaning praying for a move of God, praying for the will of God. See, one of the things Finney said, he used this example. He said there was one uh, lady in, in one of the towns that, uh, uh, that he had one of his greatest revivals in. He said that he found out that there was a lady that had been praying for a year that had a spirit of revival and had been praying for a year before they ever made plans to come to that town. And she said, she told him, he found out about her, so he interviewed her. And he found out about this woman, and she, he told, she told him, that about six months after praying, six months before they ever made any plans to come to their cities or whatever, about six months into her praying, she said, God gave me such an assurance. She said, I had a revelation from God that there would be a revival in this city. Finney uses that as an example saying, once you get that, nothing can stop it. He bemoans the fact that most people won't pray until then. But he said, once you get a revelation from God, once you become convinced that it's the will of God to have a move of the Spirit, he said, nothing can stop it. Well, folks, I think we have that from Scripture. I think we have that from the Bible telling us that Jesus is coming for a glorious church. I believe that the Bible is telling us that, that he comes to us as the rain. And that latter early rain and former rain and latter rain is what brings about the precious fruit of the earth. If that doesn't stir us up to pray... What's going to do it? What's our alternative? Watch the world slide further and further into hell? At what point do we become concerned enough that we pray? At what point do we care enough about what the world is doing and how the world is sliding into the ditch, literally the hell, the ditch of hell? At what point do we, do we watch that Before we care that people are going to hell. At what point do we do we watch the church and the reproach of the church in the modern day before we care enough to turn that around. Now folks if I could give you a spirit of prayer I'd do it. If I could pray for you to have a spirit of prayer and that would do it it would already be done. I don't think anybody can do this except the individual. And it starts off not because God prompts them and God tells them and God gives them something special. It starts off because we decide this is not the way that God wants it to be. And then the more you pray, the more desire you have to pray. And then the more you pray, the more the spirit of prayer comes on you. But we have to stir ourselves up first. So who was right? Is it a move of God? When it comes to revival, is it a move of God or is it the work of the church? both it's the work of the church to set themselves in position to be used of god and then god moves so what are we to do zechariah chapter 10 you know this verse of scripture yet zechariah 10 verse 1 ask ye of the lord reign in the time of the latter rain anybody have any doubts that this is the time for the latter rain I'm encouraged by the fact that the Bible says Jesus is coming for a glorious church, not a laughingstock. If Jesus comes back for the church, folks, think of it like this. If the church keeps sliding down further and further into the hole that we're headed for, becoming more and more like the world, less and less distinct for what the Bible specifically and obviously says is sin and sinful activity. If the church continues further and further down that hole, and Jesus comes back for us and just snatches us out of the way. Would the world not say, Who in the world would want that group? Do you really think that that's who Jesus is coming for? Do you really think that Jesus is going to split the sky and come back to the church, catch us up, and say, I know we don't look like much, but they're family. Do you really think that's the way God operates? But if the church is exhibiting the glory of God, the power of God, the miraculous power of God and on fire and affecting people everywhere that they go, if the news of the glory of God is covering the earth like the Bible says that it will before Jesus comes back, then Jesus snatches us up out of the way. Wouldn't you want Jesus to be proud of who we are? Don't you think God would do everything in his power To make it so, so that Jesus would be proud of coming to get us? Now, if if it's a downward spiral, if it's continuing to go further and further, then God did Jesus a great injustice by not taking him out by by Acts chapter 6 anyway. I mean, if there was going to be a rapture at the height of the church, it should have been in Acts chapter 5. unless the church today does the same works and has the same glory exhibited through us as we see recorded in the book of Acts. Am I wrong on that? You understand the point I'm trying to make, don't you? So what are we to do? Ask, give the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. Remember, it says he'll come to us. He's talking about a move of God. Ask for a move of God in the time of the latter rain. Folks, we're in that time. What's God going to do if we do that? So the Lord shall make bright clouds. This word bright clouds is also translated lightnings. It's talking about the glory of God as it's seen in the Old Testament. The bright shining cloud, lightnings, which refers to the power of God. So the Lord shall make bright clouds or lightnings and give them showers of rain to every one grass in the field. Showers of rain. One of the things that uh, Smith Wigglesworth, who raised 20-something, there's a discrepancy is we're not sure if it was 22 or 27 people from the dead. So we want to be conservative. Let's say 22. One of the things that Smith, these are confirmed cases. Nobody, Nobody can dispute those 22. One of the things that he said just before he died, or shortly before he died, is he said that he saw the moves of God to come. He said, I see a move of the Spirit of God. He said, I see a... uh, He talked about a revival of the Spirit. He said, I see a revival of the Word, but he said, I see a last revival that will be a combination of the Spirit and the Word. He said, and that's the one that will bring Jesus back. Now, he said this in 1947. There was a charismatic revival in the 1960s that was a revival of the Spirit of God. People got filled with the Holy Ghost like crazy all over the the world, really. And then in the 80s, the late 70s and and to mid-80s, mid to late 80s, there was a revival of the Word, the teaching of the Word of God. But he said after that, there would be one that would be a combination of both. And he said that was the last stage of revival. Well, that's exactly what they had in the early days of the church. They had the preaching of the Word. They had the moving of the Spirit of God. And it caused people to be healed in the streets. I love to say it this way, folks. Forgive me for being repetitive, but I love saying this phrase. When the Holy Ghost was in charge of the church, people were healed in the streets. I believe we're coming back to that day.